Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, my name is Dr. Hassan Galadari, uh, an assistant professor at the UAE University in uh, the United Arab Emirates, and uh, welcome to uh, the latest edition of Dialogues in Dermatology uh, with the topic on hyperhidrosis. With me today is uh, Dr. Jason Cha from uh, Thomas Jefferson University, and uh, Shiri Nowaraki, uh, who's a fourth-year medical student uh, at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. Uh, hi, good afternoon, uh, ladies. How are things? Good afternoon. Hello. All right. All right, so our topic today is going to be on hyperhidrosis, and this is something that a lot of our patients complain usually about, and they feel a little bit more on the embarrassed side. Sometimes they show up in clinics. Sometimes they're, you know, they don't know where to go and what to do. So... I just want to start off, and I'm going to give this question. It's going to be a very general question about the definition of hyperhidrosis. How would somebody define hyperhidrosis? Okay, so hyperhidrosis is defined as excessive sweating that exceeds the normal thermoregulatory needs of the body. Um, it's believed to uh, arise from overstimulation of otherwise normal eccrine sweat glands. And it can be classified as either primary or secondary, and then further classified by anatomic location and distribution. So it can be focal, regional, symmetric, asymmetric, generalized, etc. Um, and primary hyperhidrosis is idiopathic. It's the most common type of hyperhidrosis. And it typically presents as focal, bilateral, and symmetric distribution of sweat. Uh, it typically occurs on the palms, the soles, the underarms, or the craniofacial regions. Um, secondary hyperhidrosis is less common. It arises as a result of an underlying condition, such as a medication side effect. So, for example, tricyclic antidepressants, some antibiotics like ciprofloxacin, uh, the tryptin class of drugs. Um, it can also be due to a physiologic process like heat, fever, or menopause, or a pathologic process like certain um, malignancies, um, infections, other medical conditions like diabetes or hyperthyroidism. And that's pretty much the definition. So my question is that, for example, if a, if a person sweats a lot, you know, you know they, they exercise and they sweat a lot, how would you say that this person has just a normal physiological sweating as compared to, you know, your uh, hyperhidrosis? When does a person actually say, listen, this is quantifiable hyperhidrosis? How would you quantify that? So, so for a diagnosis of uh, hyperhidrosis, the first we want to determine this is the primary or secondary and as uh, Sherry mentioned, the secondary is associated with other medical problems or other pathologic process, and we are focusing on the primary uh, hypohydrosis here. And so uh, the diagnostic criteria for primary uh, hypohydrosis, uh, the duration has to be more than six months, uh, and the frequency of uh, hypohydrosis uh, should be more than uh, weekly. Um, and then uh, the onset of the hypohydrosis uh, need to be uh, before 
age of 25, and it has to be symmetric, and it should disturb the daily activities. So once we determine that uh, this is uh, most likely a primary uh, localized or generalized hyperhidrosis, then the severity scale, there is um, the hyperhidrosis disease severity scale criteria. So uh, there is a score one through four. So score one is the normal. So the sweating is uh, not really noticeable and it never interferes uh, with the daily activities. That's considered a score one. And if the sweating is uh, tolerable but sometimes interferes with the daily activities, that would be score two. If the sweating is barely tolerable and frequently interferes with the daily activities, that's score three. And probably we need to consider uh, some kinds of a treatment from uh, severity scale score three. And score four would be uh, intolerable sweating uh, with uh, consistent interference uh, with the daily activities. Mm -hmm. How, how common is this? I mean, we're, what are we talking about in terms of like incidents? I mean, is this something that's very, very common? Yes. So um, there are a lot of studies out there that have reported various prevalence rate for uh, hyperhidrosis. In the U.S., the most recent study um, cited it at around 4.8% of the population being affected. Um, however, other countries have reported much higher prevalence rates. Um, and if you think about mm -hmm. it, due to the embarrassing and under-discussed nature of the condition, it's likely that 4.8% is an underestimation for the U.S. population. Um, it's likely underreported by patients and therefore underdiagnosed by physicians. Now, well, so you so you've mentioned the reason one of the reasons that you know the incidence is not as high, for example, is because of the, the quality of life of the impact that, it, that that the condition actually has. So. Um, is there, has, has this been studied? Has there, are there any studies out there that looks at the quality of life of uh, patients with hyperhidrosis? Yes. So there are a lot of studies out there discussing the quality of life. And as you can see from the hyperhidrosis disease severity scale that Dr. Cha just mentioned, in all of those um, criteria, it talks about the interference with daily activities. Um, so hyperhidrosis can have a tremendous impact. Um, it can affect various aspects of life such as daily activities, work functions, um, social engagement. And these patients, you know, for example, they may have trouble using touch technology like cell phones or uh, they may fear shaking hands because their hands are so sweaty. Uh, they often feel embarrassed, frustrated, or insecure. Um, and this can often deter them from engaging in social interactions. Um, it can also have a financial impact on patients as well. Um, for example, if they constantly need to replace their shirts or their shoes, uh, these can definitely add up and be costly to the patients. Okay. All right. So, I mean, so there's definitely there's an issue that happens in terms of the quality of life, and this is something that we really, as practitioners, have to kind of look at and uh, as you rightfully mentioned, in terms of the severity scales, really act, you know, quantify and make sure that uh, that is uh, taken care of, especially, I believe, in certain uh, employment statuses. For example, if a person, worked for a, you know, as you mentioned, uh, touch phones and so forth, but I believe, you know, for example, certain uh, vocations or certain jobs in which the use of, for example, their hands is very important, it really can affect the way that they work, I believe. Is that correct? 
Definitely. Definitely. And even the sporting activities and hobbies and like throughout the whole uh, spectrum of uh, the lifestyle can be um, affected by the hypohydrosis. Okay. Well, I just got off clinic. And believe it or not, I saw him today with uh, plantar hyperhidrosis. So he was a 47-year-old uh, male uh, who says that he's been complaining of, you know, excessive sweating in the palms and the soles. And he, so he told me that his, uh, he's got family members who've also had the same issue. So the patient comes like that. Uh, what other questions would you ask? How would you work them up? Yeah, so when the patient comes for a palmar plantar hypohydrosis, actually that's one of the most common uh, localized primary hypohydrosis, uh, we uh, I mean, start with uh, asking the relevant clinical history. We know this is uh, localized, and uh, we need to know how long he has been having this problem. And it, it, uh, he said there is a family history, so that is... Um, consistent with the primary hyperhidrosis and if there is any trigger and how often he has this problem. And sometimes uh, sometimes uh, the, the most bothersome uh, symptom is not sweat. Sometimes it can be an odor or sometimes uh, the hyperhidrosis is associated with other secondary comorbidities. It may uh, flare his dyshydrotic eczema or a patient may have uh, erythrasma or other uh, bacterial or uh, fungal infections. So we uh, try to determine uh, all these things uh, with a clinical history and physical examination and, and measure the, the severity scores. So uh, once we all uh, know uh, the circumstances, then uh, we consider the treatment options. Usually for um, localized hypohydrosis, we also want to maximize the benefit from the topical antiperspirant. The patient may be already using a topical antiperspirant, but sometimes uh, they are not really using uh, the antiperspirant uh, properly. Sometimes patients, especially if they have an axillary hypohydrosis, they are confused with the topical deodorant. So we need to make sure right. that the patient is using proper antiperspirant. And, um, before we get to the treatment, Dr. Uh, I just want, you know, you, you, before we just get to that, uh, would you do certain tests? Would you test that patient? I mean, would you, is there anything that's, that you order from the lab? Uh, for the lab? Uh, I mean, we... Um, so for determining the hypohydrosis, I mean, in the textbook, uh, that we have this uh, starch test or ninhydrin test, but it's uh, it's rarely used in the the actual practice. And when the when the the sweating is very severe, then we can uh, check um, like a the regular uh, electrolyte um, the problems in the patient. But if it is a localized the hypohydrosis. It's very rare for the patient to have any uh, lab abnormalities, but if it is very significant and if there is um, the concern for the secondary hypohydrosis, then we definitely need to uh, make sure the patient have no other underlying medical issue or taking uh, certain medications like a depressant or anti-Parkinson medications and things like that. So, yeah, those things uh, to be uh, considered if there is 
a concern for any other systemic uh, problems with a patient. So from my understanding, this is something that you will diagnose more or less from the history and physical examination. If, you know, if it's just blatantly out there, for example, such as something that's, you know, palmar plantar or auxiliary, if it's focal, you, there's a, you basically just diagnose it through history and physical. Yes. Okay. All right. Very good. All right. So if that's the case, now I'm going to move to the, the treatment aspect, and you really touched a little bit upon it, and you were talking about the, the use of topical uh, medications. So you would, so, you know, what, what would you start with? You would start off with something like an antiperspirant? Yes, antiperspirant. There is many options as an over-the-counter, and um, the using antiperspirant is not uh, uh, not the only uh, parts that we have to check because oftentimes the patients are not properly using the antiperspirant, and sometimes they are mm-hmm. confused with the deodorant uh, with antiperspirant. So, patient should be using antiperspirant, and um, it has. To used on the dry skin, and the best time to apply the antiperspirant is at nighttime because um, that's the time uh, less likely a patient uh, will sweat after applying the antiperspirant. And uh, the antiperspirant should not be washed away within six hours after its application. So uh, those uh, metal components in the antiperspirant can stay in the sweat duct and it can do its job of occluding the sweat duct and make a precipitate with the sweat protein. And eventually, with um, the, the long-time use of antiperspirant, there is uh, a data that can uh, cause uh, the atrophy of the sweat gland. So patients uh, can uh, use the antiperspirant according to the instruction, and at least for one month. And they actually, the 25% of my patients see some difference after proper use of an antiperspirant. So this could be a very good option uh, for axillary mm-hmm. hypohydrosis as well as the palmoplantar plantar hypohydrosis. What are the possible adverse events that people might be uh, having if they, if they use uh, the antiperspirant? The mm-hmm. so most common um, side effect would be irritant contact dermatitis or rarely an mm-hmm. allergic contact dermatitis because of the other additives. And as, um, I, as you can imagine, that this is the most um, potent antiperspirant is like a 20 to 40% aluminum chloride. So you can imagine the, uh, the irritation from those um, metals. Yeah. So, uh, so that's the reason why it's actually better to use in the nighttime so they won't rub this um, the against it. And then also there will be uh, less of uh, irritation uh, from sweating too. And so actually it's better not to use during the daytime. So they can use it in the nighttime and uh, do not add any other irritation during the sleep. And then in the daytime they can wash it off. And then a uh, patient can use the powder, so that powder can absorb the, the sweat during the day. And it can also, uh, certain powders are a little bit of a moistening, like a starch powders or uh, there's a potato starch powders, like various type of powders, so they can actually soothe the skin during the day. Uh, and then they can reapply mm-hmm. antiperspirant during the night. So that might be uh, the way to minimize the irritation from the antiperspirant. But 
there is a certain uh, good percentage of patients still may not uh, improve uh, enough uh, after a proper use of antiperspirant. So in that case, we can also consider other treatment options. So the patient that you mentioned having a plantar hypohydrosis, maybe the next uh, proper step would be um, uh, like an ionophoresis. Um, that's uh, uh, the device that uh, we can use as an over-the-counter or with a prescription. And um, that's uh, the palmar plantar hypohydrosis. Actually, there are many a number of patients already using it before they even present to the clinic. And it uh, seemed to work well for some patients. So that can be an option. What's the mechanism of action of how that works, the ionophoresis? Uh-huh. Yes, so ionophoresis uh, involves current transfer through undamaged skin. Uh, the exact mechanism of action has not been definitively confirmed, but there are several theories out there. So these include blockage of sweat secretion by a, by a hyperkeratotic plug, interference with the electrochemical gradient that is needed for sweat secretion, blockage of sympathetic nerve transmission or reduction in the pH due to hydrogen ion accumulation. All of these are thought to kind of reduce the sweat secretion overall. Okay. So what about in terms of do patients feel the current once they have this on their skin or, you know? Uh... So typically not. Uh, typically uh, they just place their hands in the medium um, and they can... Yeah still tingling, but for the most part, it's pretty much pain-free. Sometimes it can be associated okay. with, with some uh, erythema afterwards, but these are typically mild. And how often would you, uh, you know, do the treatment? How often would you ask the patient to have this done on a daily basis or weekly or monthly? So uh, typically it's done three to four times per week uh, for around 20 to 30 minutes. So you can imagine that this can be kind of, uh, this can take some time to get used to, and it may not be appropriate for all patients if they're not able to you know, cooperate with that demand. Um, and in that case, they can consider other treatment options. All right. So now, now you mentioned the others, uh, the other treatments. What, what, what would be, so we, we talk about the antiperspirants, we talk about the anesthesis. Where are we after that? So, yeah, so what are we doing? Yeah, so if the patient uh, is willing and also there is some um, like financial burden, but um, we can also consider a botulinum toxin injection uh, for the parmahydrosis most likely. Um, and uh, sometimes actually uh, the insurance company is, um, is not willing to pay for uh, the botulinum toxin injection for uh, these patients. But I think that actually uh, could be a good effective treatment. Mm -hmm. And if uh, that's not the case, then we may uh, have to uh, consider uh, some systemic anticholinergics like glycopyrrolate or oxybutynin. And uh, that's uh, probably uh, the, the things that we can um, titrate over time. And then if that doesn't work out, then, then there is more uh, invasive uh, surgical procedures that um, I don't do, but I can refer to the thoracic surgeons for sympathectomy. Mm -hmm. 
uh, something like that. Dr. Shaw, what is the estimate cost of each treatment? I mean, I mean, there's definitely a burden there in terms of costs and uh, loss of, uh, you know, uh, working hours and so forth. So what are we talking in terms of cost of treatment here for these uh, patients? I mean, I believe the antiperspirants are probably the cheapest. Right, yeah, antiperspirant is uh, the cheapest, and that's the reason why we want to really maximize the benefit from the antiperspirant, the topical antiperspirant. So that can be anywhere between $5 to $25. But if that doesn't work and if we um, consider uh, some um, the the oral or systemic um, uh, anticholinergics, then uh, depending on the patient's insurance plan, uh, the co-payment, and if the patient has uh, no insurance coverage, then there will be about 100 to 150 dollars per month supply. And then there is new uh, topical, like a pyronium clause, uh, just came out on the market. Uh, and that uh, I don't think a lot of insurance companies are covering, and that package is about $500 per month supply. So if we uh, run out of those options, then this ionophoresis uh, device that uh, can be purchased over the counter or with uh, the prescription, some insurance company uh, pays for this ionophoresis uh, device and that uh, cost is anywhere between 250 to $700. Uh, so that can be also used. And then botulinum toxin that uh, I think there are a, a good number of insurance companies that pays, but if the patient is not covered, then uh, the botulinum toxin vial itself uh, for 100 units is about $600 and uh, there will be also um, additional procedure fees in the, in the clinic. Um, so after then, uh, the surgical procedures, probably it's depending on the practice, and sometimes in the past it uh, was covered by the insurance company, but that constantly changes, so it's hard to say how much it will cost for the surgical procedures. Okay, that's fascinating. You know, uh, we're, we're running short on the time, but I just wanted to kind of ask you a few more questions and you just give me bullet points here. The first one is, what is the youngest patient you've ever treated who has had, you know, any type of hyperhidrosis, any type of problem with hyperhidrosis? 19 years old. Um, okay. So, I mean, for... Um, for that age, actually, uh, it didn't really change uh, the treatment options, but I understand that if it is like a early teenagers, then uh, it, it's probably something uh, to question what kind of treatment options uh, to be considered. And also uh, in this particular age, maybe uh, the patient's parents are also uh, concerned about uh, different kinds of uh, treatment. So for that uh, okay. we uh, definitely want to consider uh, with um, the over-the-counter antiperspirant first, and then if uh, that is not the options, then uh, if it happened to be a palmar plantar hyperhidrosis, then uh, we can um, consider the ionophoresis because that um, the youngest age that we come across in the literature search is uh, nine years old. So we can consider the okay. ionophoresis. 
and also botulinum toxin uh, can be used anywhere uh, from uh, two years old. It can be used for uh, cervical dystonia, so I don't see uh, it, it cannot be used for the, the pediatric population. And then the new class, the glycopyronium class, can be also used for the axillary hyperhidrosis. And for um, systemic anticholinergics like glycopyrrolate can be used after 11 years old. So that could be another option if, if the patient is older than 11 years old. Fantastic. The other question that I wanted to ask you, so you've got a person who's a public figure who gives a lot of presentations and, you know, it's always, always out there, uh, and he's complaining more or less of just excessive sweating on the face. Uh, so you've diagnosed him with craniofacial hyperhidrosis. What would be a treatment option for that type of person? Yeah, so craniofacial hyperhidrosis is uh, more limited in terms of the, the treatment options because topical antiperspirant or uh, botulinum toxin uh, can be a tricky uh, treatment for, for this patient. So if the patient is particularly uh, identifies the social uh, event or public presentations are the trigger for hyperhidrosis, then we may consider like a low-dose beta blockers or benzodiazepines prior to the event that he anticipates that would provoke his, um, uh, the sweating. So uh, maybe he can try very low-dose uh, beta blockers and see how it works, and then we can titrate the dose uh, depending on his response to the initial dose for the next event. Fantastic. Well, uh, Jisun, uh, Sherry, thank you so much for this wonderful uh, conversation on a topic that is of extreme importance. And, I've, I, you know, I, I really appreciate you uh, shedding uh, light on the subject, especially something that is apparently is quite common but causes a lot of embarrassment for our patients and they don't come forward because of this. And I'm glad there are many options in terms of treatment for that. So I do thank you so much for being uh, with us on this uh, uh, podcast of Dialogues in Dermatology. I would love to have you again sometime in the near future. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you so much for inviting and uh, let us have this conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thank you very much. We had a great time. You're welcome.